So tonight I want to introduce you to the English Reformation. It occurred obviously in England in the 1500s, 16th century. And as we get started, if you, if you read anything in scholarly circles about the English Reformation, there's two views about how it happened. The first view is from a guy named A.G. Dickens, and he wrote in the 1960s, and he, he said, well, the English Reformation happened because the general public in England were dissatisfied with the Roman Catholic Church. They were not happy, so there was this grassroots movement to reform the English church, and that's called the, the English Reformation from below. That's what that's called. There's another view that came out in the early 1980s. It was called the book called The Reformation of the English People, and it said, no, people were generally happy with the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, in fact, it was the King of England who imposed this Reformation upon the English people. And so th that view is called the English Reformation from above. So you have, is it, was it from below? Was it from above? And I tend to believe it was from below uh, because there were clearly people who were discontent with the, the, the way things were in the Roman Catholic Church in England, and they wanted reform. And so I want to look at, at just a couple of areas where there was support for the Protestant cause in England. The first support came from a group called the English Humanists. The term humanist refers to those who devoted themselves to the study of classical literature. The prince of the humanists was a man named Erasmus. Erasmus was, um, he wanted to see reform in the church. So he began studying the Greek language, he mastered it, and then he produced an updated uh, Greek translation or Latin translation of the New Testament with the Greek right beside it. And so his second edition was published in 1519, and that was used by Martin Luther when he produced his German translation of the Bible. So German was, I mean, um, Luther was looking at Erasmus's work. Erasmus lectured at the University of Cambridge, and he was influencing others on these ideas of hum English humanism. But then there was another guy named William Tyndale. You've probably heard of William Tyndale. He was responsible for a new English translation of the Bible that played a major uh, significant role in the English Reformation. At the time, the Latin Vulgate was the only copy of God's Word that was approved by the church. Now, if you were educated, you could read Latin, but if you were just a common person that didn't do a whole lot of school, you couldn't read Latin. And so, you, in other words, you couldn't read the Bible. And so you had to depend on what a priest would tell you about the Bible. And so Tyndale had a passion to translate the Bible so that the common person could read the Word of God. So he was very smart, and he uh, could speak seven languages. He went to the University of Oxford and graduated there with a master's degree in, in the year 1512. A very bright young man. And so but an act of parliament prohibited anyone from translating the Scriptures without a bishop's permission. And so Tyndale went to the Bishop of London and said, hey, can I... Can I translate the Bible into English? And he said, no, you can't do that. And so Tyndale left England and went over to Germany and in, to where he would have freedom to do this. And in 1524, he completed his English translation of the New Testament. He printed it. This is what he had to say about translating the Bible into English. I had perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scriptures were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. This guy had a passion for the Word of God and for people to read the Word of God. So he gave his life to translating it. So his translation of the Bible focused on using the Hebrew and Greek text. 
And he completed his New Testament translation, revised it at least two times before he died. And in 1530, he translated the first five books of the Old Testament until one day in 1535, a friend went to his house and led him outside and he betrayed Tyndale and Tyndale was arrested. And um, Tyndale thought he was safe with this guy. The guy, there were some officers out there waiting for him. They arrested him and they uh, they burned him to death. And it said, it was recorded right before he died, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, open the, the king of England's eyes. It's amazing. By the time of his death in 1536, around 16,000 copies of his translation were, were circulating in England. And so he's often called the father of the English Bible. And um, there's, there's, pro- there's all kind of Tyndale things out there these days. There's a Tyndale Old Testament commentary series if you go to the University of Cambridge, there's a place there called the Tyndall House. You can go there and study. Uh, I, I attended a lecture there years ago. There's all, if you, so if you see the name Tyndale, now you know where it came from. That's, that's William Tyndale. And so um, his Bible translation, completely uh, completed by him, and the latter ones completed by his assistants, formed the basis of all succeeding English, English Bibles to the 20th century. It's amazing. But officially, the English Reformation was instigated by a man named King Henry VIII. And um, in 1485, a relatively unknown Welshman named Henry Tudor was crowned Henry VII. And Henry VII had two sons. One of his name was Arthur, and the youngest one was named Henry. And um, so the hope of the, um, uh, by the time uh, Arthur would have been king because his dad died, uh, Henry VII died, Arthur had also died. And so that meant that now young King Henry, Henry VIII was now king. He was 17 years old and he became king. And this was in 1509. And man, he looked the part of a king. He, he was tall, he was handsome, he was impressive, he was athletic, he was a composer, he was a fine musician, he had a good voice, he was very smart, he knew several different languages, he had a lot going for him, but he was unmarried. And so he married his, his brother's widow, his brother's uh, f- uh, former wife, because he died. He married her, and her name was Catherine of Aragon. She was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain on June 11, 1509. Now, marrying your brother's widow was against canon law in the Catholic Church at that point, so he had to sp- seek special permission from the Pope. So he sent off to the, the Pope Julius II, and uh, the Pope just happily you know, Henry was a brand new leader in the world. He said, yeah, sure, go ahead and do it. And so um, yet among some people, they doubted, you know, is this really legal that he's marrying his brother's uh, former wife? So there, there was just suspicion from the very beginning as to the legality of his marriage. I mean, from, from the get-go, uh, from the outsider perspective, things look, things look pretty normal for Henry and his wife, Catherine. They were very social. They made rounds together. They appeared happy. She was six years older than him. Uh, England had been in, was in a war with France. They had some success there. Everything looked pretty good. However, tension was building in their marriage because he wanted a male heir, and they had not been able to have one yet. Catherine had several pregnancies, and that had included that where she had a, a male baby, but they either ended ended in a miscarriage, stillbirth, or early death. And so, in 1516, they did have a baby. But she was a girl, and they named her Mary. And we'll come back to her in a little bit. But the dilemma of providing an heir remained, uh, for, for, remained a problem from, for Henry. 
because he was unsure whether England would receive a queen to be the heir. So he, he was driven. Man, I've got to have a male heir. Well, by 1525, since Catherine was a little bit older than he was, she was seen beyond the years of childbearing. And so, uh, boy, this was really a problem. So he's, Henry started thinking, well, I've got to have a solution to this problem. You know what? I think I'll annul my marriage. That's, and so he set out to annul his marriage, to say, well, it was never legal in the first place, so it was never a legitimate marriage. So he, um, he appealed to the Pope for this, and the, the Pope was, was kind of in a catch-22 situation. So the Pope delayed, uh, just didn't make a decision for about two years. So Henry got tired of waiting and said, well, I'm going to go to the Parliament. Maybe the English Parliament can help me with this. So Parliament, uh, they were talking about it. And then Henry also said, or Thomas Cramner was his religious advisor at, the, advisor at the time. Cramner said, hey, why don't you ask some of the universities in the world what they think about this? So he, he appealed to several universities like Paris and Cambridge and Oxford and some in Italy, another one, and just said, hey, what do you guys think? All of the universities said, you can annul your marriage. You know, it was, it was never legitimate. It's okay for you to, to break with Catherine. And so from this point forward, Henry pursued uh, that course of action, which would lead to England's break with the Church of Rome. Uh, and Henry felt, he felt like he had biblical warrant for this uh, divorce. It was in Leviticus 20, 21, which says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Uh, now, he, he overlooked that they already had a child, but... Um, you know, they didn't have a male child. So see, you can make Scripture say pretty much anything you want if you, if you twist it hard enough. And so, um, but that, that's, what, that's what he wanted to do, so that, that's what happened. Now, another, another factor that made this situation a little more touchy was that he fell in love with another lady during this time. She was a 20-year-old lady named Anne Boleyn. She was intelligent, spirited, and she caught his eye. And so he began writing her passionate love letters that uh, have, have survived and allowed historians to look at this. And so are the days of our lives. Isn't this just a soap opera? And it just, man, it goes on and on. By 1529, Henry was tired of waiting on an answer on the status of his marriage with Catherine. So he called on the English Parliament to get involved. And so the English Parliament passed a key statute called the Act in Restraint of Appeals. This prohibited any appeals to courts outside the country for rulings made in English court. That means, so now, if something was determined in English court, that was it. They didn't have to go to Rome. They didn't have to go to Spain. They didn't have to go to any other country. And so um, this established the English court. It allowed them to annul the king's marriage without any other threat from Rome. Rome could not overturn their decision. So this legislation proved helpful for Henry's cause, because early in 1533, it became known that Anne was pregnant. His, his mistress was pregnant. He married Anne secretly in January of 1533. And in March, Parliament passed the Act in Restraint of Appeals. And on May 23rd, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was now Thomas Cramner, he had been appointed by the Pope earlier in 1533, he declared that Henry's marriage to Catherine was not valid, so it was annulled. And on June the 1st, Anne Boleyn was crowned Queen of England. Several months later, on September the 7th, Henry and Anne's baby was born, and it was a girl, much to their disappointment. Her name was Elizabeth. One year later, in 1534, the English Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy. The Act of Supremacy was the official document that separated England from Rome. 
And I wanted to read part of it to you. It says, Be it enacted by the authority of this present parliament that the king, our sovereign lord, his heirs and successors, kings of this realm, shall be taken, accepted, and reputed the only supreme head on earth of the church of England. So that's why the king of the church or queen of England is now also the, the head of the church there in England. This goes all the way back to 1534. So 1534 was the official break from the church of Rome. So now the king had the responsibility to determine, okay, now we're, we're no longer under Rome's authority, but what does this mean for England? What does this mean for the future of our churches? And so it was interesting now because those closest to Henry were, were, had Protestant leanings. Anne Boleyn was very sympathetic to the Protestants, his new wife. And his two closest advisors were Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cramner. Uh, Thomas Cromwell was the most important figure in the royal government. Government. Thomas Cramner was the archbishop. They both su- supported the Protestant cause. So you had now these people were influencing Henry on the, for the Protestant cause. And so... Uh, Between 1532 and 1536, nine elderly bishops in the church died, plus two others resigned. So you had 11 uh, openings, bishop openings, in the country of England. And so Anne began pulling from a a pool of evangelicals who would replace those Catholic bishops. So slowly but surely, you're getting Protestant bishops now in England's churches. And then uh, Cromwell and Cramner heavily influenced the English Reformation's first doctrinal statements, they were published in 1536. They were known as the Ten Articles. And then in, in, um, in 1538, the Protestant cause received a significant boost when an order in the royal injunctions declared that a Bible in English be placed in every parish church. Guys, this was life-changing. To, to li- just imagine, you were, if you were born in 1500, when you were, it would be 38 years old till there was an English Bible in your church. They were all in Latin. It was amazing. This, you know, this, was, this was really transforming for them. But personally, things did not improve very much for Henry. In January 1536, his first wife, Catherine, died of natural causes. Henry and Anne rejoiced, but their joy was only temporary. That same month, Anne miscarried and discovered that the fetus was a male. Well, Henry was furious. He put blame on, on Anne. You know, he's been waiting and waiting and waiting for a male heir they finally have one, and, and she miscarries. Well, he just blames her. It's, it's, it was her fault. She did something wrong. And so uh, Henry became suspicious of her relationships with, with other men. And it came to, to, there were five men who were accused of having adultery, uh, that she was accused of having adultery with in May of 1536. All five men were killed within the month. And on May the 19th, 1546, Anne was executed. So now his he's two, first two wives have died. Ten days later, he didn't mourn for long. Ten days later, Henry married Jane Seymour. And on October the 12th, 1537, she gave birth to Henry's long-awaited male heir, whom they named Edward. So his third child was a boy named Edward. However, 12 days later, Jane died from a fever. So now he's had three wives that's died. He has three children. Three wives have passed away. Henry would marry three more times in his life, but did not have any more children. He married six times in his life. The future of England now rested in the hands of his three children, Mary, Elizabeth, and Edward. In Henry's final years as king, he showed concern about the religious diversity that now existed in England. He wanted to monitor all English books being printed, so he uh, enacted a royal proclamation in 1538 that required official approval. Uh, In 1539, Parliament passed the Act of Six Articles, 
which threatened the death penalty to those who do not. This is important for later. It, it threatened the death penalty to those who denied, denied transubstantiation, even if they recanted. In July 1540, Thomas Cromwell was removed from power, and he was considered a heretic, but Thomas Cramner survived as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was at the king's bedside when he died in 1547. So now King Henry VIII has died. So, what, so what's going to happen? You've got three children. Who's, who's going to be the heir? Well, they decided it would be, it would be King, Henry, uh, King Edward VI. Now, Edward, he, was the third, he wasn't in line, but he was the only male heir. Uh, he was only nine years old when his dad passed away. But Henry and Parliament, they had both agreed that he would succeed his son, or he would be succeeded by his son, even though he was not Henry's firstborn. But in order to help Henry, or I'm sorry, in order to be able to help Edward, the uh, par- a regency council of 16 men were put in place to rule until he could do it. So you had 16 men who would make decisions for, him, for Edward until he was old enough to get involved. And when he was 14, he began getting involved in government affairs. He was very bright. Um, and in his first few years, man, there were Protestant advances all over the place. Um, uh, at his coronation of, of King Edward, Thomas Cramner encouraged Edward. He said he, he, he reminded him of the boy Josiah. Remember, remember Josiah in the Old Testament? Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And they were, he reinstituted the Passover eventually. And, uh, man, God just brought a reform during his days. So Cramner said, hey, you know, think about Josiah. You could, you could do that. And so, um, so that's what they began doing. And so Edward was sympathetic to Protestantism, and he read his Bible every day. And so Cram- Thomas Cramner began writing these sermons and that taught evangelical theolo- theology, and they began publishing them in, in these churches. They taught the doctrine of justification by faith alone, they emphasized the sole authority of Scripture. And so in July 1547, it was ordered that these sermons must be read in all parish churches every Sunday. So now every Sunday you got a Latin Bi- I mean a, an English Bible in the church, and you have do- justification by faith, Protestant doctrines being taught all over England. It's amazing how th- things were just beginning to change. The ban on clerical marriage was removed, and the Book of Common Prayer, which you've probably heard of, that was produced, um, its main author was Thomas Cramner. Um, and so for the first time, the English people had a liturgy in their own language. And by the end of 1549, it was ordered that all Latin service books would be destroyed. So Cranmer's next major contribution came in 1553 with the publication of the 42 Articles. And um, they were very clear in proclaiming central Reformation doctors like justification by faith, sole authority of Scripture. And uh, man, things were looking bright for England. And you just have to pause here for a moment and think, what would have happened if, if that trend would have continued? But less than a month later, King uh, Edward died at age 15 years old. He only reigned for six years. But you just wonder, I mean, England was on a totally different tra- trajectory. I mean, the, the Bible's being taught. Justification by faith is being taught. What would have happened if he would have remained alive? We'll never know. Following his death... The crown went to his half-sister and Henry's firstborn child, Mary, the daughter of Henry and Catherine of Aragon. She was 37 years old at the time. She had support from the majority of the English people. She had always been Catholic, and the whole Reformation movement began because, she remember, she was not the male heir her dad wanted. She had felt unwanted by her dad. She had seen her mother disgraced, 
So needless to say, she was fully committed to restoring Roman Catholicism back in England. But she wanted to maintain the Catholic tradition even after her, she was, had died. So she married uh, Prince Philip, son of the King of Spain, who was obviously sympathetic to Catholicism, even though he was 11 years younger. And so she began initially to proceed with caution as she led. She didn't want to do things too fast because she had uh, some bishops who were sympathetic to the Protestant cause. But late in 50, 1554, Mary returned England's submission back to the Pope. Just a complete reversal. I mean, everything that Cramner and King Henry and King Edward, had, they had done to put Protestantism in place, she totally reversed it. Just unbelievable. Uh, Mary, married clergy were, were ordered to dismiss their wives. So if you're a clergy, you got married, you were told you got to send your wives away. You, can, you cannot be married and be a priest. Open persecution against Protestant leaders became the official policy of the kingdom. For this reason, Mary has been known by many as, you know what? Blo Bloody Mary. This is Bloody Mary. Almost 300 Protestants were burned to death and countless others were imprisoned or went into exile or went to the continent, uh, European continent, either Zurich, Franklin, uh, Frankfurt, or Geneva. Un unbelievable, unbelievable how quickly things changed. And so now I want to turn our attention to three particular men who championed the Protestant cause during, during uh, Mary's time, even before that, but specifically during Mary's time, and how they were affected by her policies. This is fascinating. So after Mary's ascension, some Catholic bishops who had been in, in, in prison, they were released, and some Protestant bishops were put into prison. And so three of these Protestant leaders were Archbishop Thomas Cramner, which we've already talked about him, a man named Nicholas Ridley, and another man named Hugh Latimer. They were all arrested and imprisoned in the early months of Mary's reign on charges of treason, since heresy laws had not yet been reestablished. Now think about Thomas Cramer. He'd been the archbishop. He, he, he was the one that was at the King Henry's bedside when he died. This guy had been like the Protestant voice for England, and now he's arrested on charges of treason, and he's put in the Tower of London. It's unbelievable. And so Thomas Cramner was the most important target from her perspective. She thought if she can get him to recant from his Protestant views, English, English Protestantism will be devastated. So he had played the central role into the English Reformation up to this point. So she wanted to make an example out of him. So he, he was her target, and he went after her. she went after him. But Hugh Latimer, I want to talk a little bit about Hugh Latimer. He was a popular preacher during these critical Reformation years in England. He was widely acknowledged as a foremost preacher of the English Reformation. He was saved. I'll give you just a big picture of his life, so I want to come back and talk more specifically. He was saved in 1524 and within a year began preaching. Henry VIII recognized his gifting as a preacher and made him his royal chaplain and a bishop. And then it, but then eventually he imprisoned him and banned him for preaching for eight years. <laughs> you see the back and forth here. It's, 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 it's amazing. Edward VI freed him. Latimer preached and often before the king and to pack churches. Latimer fought to make the scriptures available to English to available in English to his fellow countrymen. But before his conversion, I want to go back and talk through a little bit, kind of do a little short biography of his life. Before Latimer was uh, converted, he was a college student at the University of Cambridge. His his goal is to be a Roman Catholic priest. He was he was known to be a good speaker to be a, 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 well, a good preacher, and so he whole, but he wholeheartedly supported the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. 
He spoke against the German Reformation, and he referred to Martin Luther's teaching as Lutheran heresies. And uh, thankfully, there was a man named Thomas Bilney at Cambridge University. He was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. He was not a big man, but he had a heart for people. And he was leading the reform effort at Cambridge. So Bilney was sitting in the congregation one night, and he was listening to Hugh Latimer preach. And the Latimer was not quite like Paul. In the sense, he wasn't persecuting Christians, but he was very outspoken against Protestant, the Protestant beliefs. And Bilney sat in the congregation, and he said this. He said to himself, I was once just like that, zeal without knowledge, zeal without knowledge. Now, I wonder how quickly we write people off. We think, boy, I don't, they, they would never give their lives to Christ. But that's just the kind of person that, that Bilney wanted to go after. Thought, man, this guy's passionate. He's got zeal. He just doesn't know. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. He's got zeal without knowledge. So he wanted to talk to Latimer about Christ, but he didn't know how to do it. So he went to see Latimer one day, and with a trembling hand, he knocked on Latimer's door. This is so powerful. He knocked on Latimer's door. Latimer came to the door. Bilney was a short man. Bilney just stood there with his head down. He said, Master Latimer, for the sake of God, will you hear my confession? And Latimer said, come on in. He went and sat down, and, and uh, Latimer sat down, and Bilney just came and got right in front of him and just got on his knees. He got right in front of him and just said, let me tell you what's happened in my heart. Can I just share with you what, what's happened to me? And he just went through and told his story. He said, I got a Greek New Testament, and I opened to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I began reading what Paul wrote about how Paul said he was the, the chief of sinners, about Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and he was the chief sinner. And he said, you know, I, I gave my life to Christ, and I believed in him, and, um, and Latimer was just was floored. Latimer said he had never heard the gospel so clearly explained. It's amazing. He was just a simple little man who had a heart for people, who went to just very intimidated by Latimer. This is what Latimer said. I learned more by hearing his confession than, than I had before in many years. From that time onward, I began to smell the word of God. Isn't that interesting? This guy was a student at the University of Cambridge. He was a sharp guy. And he said, I learned more from this little man who came and got on his knees and said, man, let me tell you how Jesus has changed my life. Amazing. Latimer got a New Testament and began reading it, and he got saved. He now had forgiveness, peace, and joy. And now he began spending time with Bilney, the man who had shared Christ with him. They would talk about the Bible. They would go out and take food to the poor. They would visit people in prisons. They would go to leper colonies, and they would wash the wounds of the lepers and tell them that Christ died for their sins, that Christ loves sinners. He began to preach the gospel in Cambridge, preaching that salvation is God's free gift of grace. Well, in 1530, the Lord greatly expanded Latimer's ministry. Remember we said earlier that Henry VIII had asked for the universities to annul his, to consider annulling his marriage. One of those universities was Cambridge, and Latimer was on the committee that made that decision. And he, for whatever reason, he argued forcefully for the annulment of Henry's marriage. And so naturally, Henry liked that because that's what he wanted. And so he asked, asked Latimer to come preach for him uh, for, at Lent at the royal court at Windsor. So Latimer went and preached about Christ, preached about sin, exalted Christ. The king admired Latimer for his boldness and his commitment to the truth and made him a royal chaplain. 
So here goes a guy from, from being staunchly, they're calling you know, Lutheran heresies. He got saved, and now he's a royal chaplain. Um, this opportunity allowed Latimer to preach at numerous places throughout London. 1531, his mentor, Thomas Bildney, the man who led him to Christ, was arrested for leading a woman to Christ and giving her a New Testament. He was labeled a heretic and sentenced to be executed. Bildney was tied to the stake, and a fire was lit by his executor. Then he called out, Jesus, I believe, and he died. Latimer mourned the death of his friend, and one day he wondered if he too would suffer the same fate. Latimer soon left the royal court. He began, he was a rector or a pastor of a local congregation for a few years before he became bishop and a bishop of an area in 1535. Um, however, once uh, the king persuaded Parliament to pass the act known as the Six Articles, and I don't remember, I don't know all the Six Articles. I think one of them had to do with clerical celibacy. Uh, one of them, I think, had to do something with the Lord's Supper. But anyway, uh, Latimer didn't agree with it. And he said, well, I, I can't be a bishop if I don't agree with these. So he, he walked away, he gave up, he resigned from his position as a bishop. He was placed under house arrest because the king now viewed him with suspicion. So he went from being the royal chaplain to now he's under house arrest because the king doesn't trust him. And he eventually spent about a year and a half under arrest in the Tower of London. But under King Edward VI, Latimer was free. He was able to preach the gospel that he loved. But he often told his friends... Preaching the gospel will cost me my life. During Edward's reign, that six-year reign, Nicholas Ridley became the Bishop of London. He was a brilliant man. He had trained at Cambridge. He was a reformer. And uh, he was Thomas Cramner's primary assistant who helped him write the 42 articles, which was the essential doctrines of the Christian faith for the Church of England. But things changed once Mary succeeded King Edward VI and became queen. She had Cramner and Ridley... Um, arrested first, and before Latimer had not been arrested yet, he lived quietly in the English countryside. Although he expected, as a faithful follower of Jesus, he too would be killed. There was a messenger sent to his house to arrest him and bring him to London. A friend told him about this. He said, hey, Latimer, there's someone coming. They're going to come arrest you. Now, there's a lot of things he could have done. He could have taken off at that moment, run away, and, and just said, hey, thanks for telling me. I'm out of here. But he didn't. Instead, he packed his bags, and he was sitting there waiting when the guy came to get him. And this is what he said. He greeted him warmly. Latimer did. He said, my friend, you are a welcome messenger to me, and I want you and all the world to know that I go as will willingly to London now. This guy was ready to suffer for the gospel. And so before the council, Latimer held his evangelical beliefs. He was sent to the London Tower. He was not allowed to visit his friends and fellow prisoners, Cramner and Ridley, at first, but eventually all three were put into the same cell. They spent their time, talking about spending time well, they spent their time studying God's Word to see if there was any evidence of the real presence of Jesus in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, and they could find no such evidence. Well, in March 1554, about seven months in the Tower of, uh, after seven months in the Tower of London, uh, the council ordered Latimer, Ridley, and Cramner to be moved to Oxford where they would stand trial. And uh, I read, you know, Latimer had a comment about how cold it was in that Tower of London. You imagine how cold it was there. And, um, but they, they, now they moved them to Oxford where they would stand trials. They, they put them in separate, in, um, separate uh, cells when they went to Oxford so they couldn't communicate with each other. 
The trial was held at St. Mary the Virgin Church, also known as University Church, right in the heart of Oxford. And uh, that building is still there today. Courtney and I have been in there. It's a beautiful, if you go to Oxford, it's one of those things you've got to go see. Um, it, it originated in the 13th century. But this trial was on, it began on Saturday, April the 14th. And um, more than 20 of Oxford's most able theologians, they were all Roman Catholic, they were on a panel and they brought in the, um, the, each, each of these three men, they brought them in individually and they just grilled them with questions just over and over and over. And they demanded that they affirm that the real presence of Jesus is in the, the elements of the bread and wine. They said, you know, you've, you've, you need to affirm this. And they wouldn't do it. And, and they wanted to affirm, they wanted these three men to affirm that Jesus was sacrificed in the Mass. Remember we talked about this in our sacraments a few weeks ago? And they wouldn't do it. They, would, they said, no, no, no. This is what Latimer said. He held up his New Testament. He said, I have read it over seven times since I've been, since coming to prison, and I cannot find the Mass in it. I've read it. I just, I don't see it. He denied that the Mass, in the Mass, Christ is offered up as a sacrifice. He rebuked the panel for not teaching people God's Word, for holding worship services in Latin. Latin was interrogated by the panel for three hours. He ended his written statement by saying, I will stand with God's help to the fire. I would rather live than die, but seeing they are directly against God's word, I will obey God more than man, and so embrace the stake. Latimer knew that he was about to be burned alive. Two days later, after the three reformers had been questioned by the panel, they stood again in St. Mary's Church before this panel. They were condemned as heretics. Then the waiting game began as they returned to prison. Latimer wrote to Ridley, Fear of death persuades a great number. Be well aware of that argument. On another occasion, Latimer wrote, We know that Christ has overcome death, and not for himself, but for us, for our sake, so that when we believe in Christ, death shall not hurt us, for it has lost his strength and power. While in prison, Nicholas Ridley, one of the other guys, wrote, Blessed be God, we are merry in God, and all our care is by, is by God's grace to please and serve him. That's why I read that verse for you earlier in 1 Thessalonians about the joy that comes in the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of affliction. The Holy Spirit gives us joy no matter what our circumstances are. He says, we're marrying God, even though they knew they were probably going to die. By the end of 1554, Queen Mary's government had been reunited with the Church of Rome, and the stage was set for the execution of the Reformers. A year and a half after appearing before the Council at Oxford, Latimer and Ridley appeared again at Oxford before a court of three bishops who represented the Pope. Latimer again reaffirmed his position that Christ was not truly present in the Eucharist, nor was he sacrificed during Mass. The three bishops gave Latimer and Ridley one more day to reconsider their views. So the next day, the two men appeared again individually before the bishops in a packed St. Mary's Church. Ridley went first and was condemned and consigned to the mayor for execution. Latimer went next and was declared a heretic, was excommunicated and handed over to the civil authorities for execution. Two weeks later, a large crowd gathered outside the north wall of Oxford across from Balliol College to witness the execution. A large iron stake was driven into the ground. Latimer and Ridley were escorted through the Oxford streets to the stake. The two men smiled and embraced each other. They had not seen each other in a while. They knelt together in the dirt and prayed. They were placed back to back 
against the stake, and a thick iron chain was wrapped around their waist. A bag of gunpowder was tied around the neck of both men so as to speed their death in the flames. Bundles of sticks were piled waist high around Latimer and Ridley. As they set fire to it, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It's a powerful statement. I've been praying for England that that, that that would be true. As the flames rose up, Ridley cried out in a loud voice, Lord, receive my spirit. Latimer prayed, O oh, Father of heaven, receive my soul. Now you may have wondered, what about Cramner? Latimer and Ridley died. What about Cramner? Cramner was in a prison right over here, and he was watching this whole thing. And he was on his knees weeping as his friends were dying. And it was said that they, they, they did that so that Cramner would eventually recant. They wanted to intimidate him to say, look what's going to happen to you if you don't recant from your Protestant beliefs. And so Cramner remained in custody in Oxford. He was sentenced to be executed in March 1556. The date the other men were executed is October 16, 1555. In the meantime, Thomas Cramner's health deteriorated. He had an advanced, apparently had an advanced heart condition. He was also lonely, and he had some really shrewd Roman Catholic uh, people that just kept pressuring him and poking him. He had no one to support and encourage him. He finally broke, and he recanted from his Protestant beliefs. Yet even though Cramner had given in to the Roman Catholic pressure, the government kept him in prison. You would think they would have freed him. They kept him in prison. One night while he was still in prison, prison, he had a dream about a book that we talked about a number of weeks ago. And that book was Augustine's City of God. Remember we talked about that? In that book, he recalled how the book described the clash of two realms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. He, replied, he applied Augustine's work to his own day. He thought, well, you have the King Henry VIII and you have Jesus. You have the kingdom of this world, uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Cramner felt tremendous guilt, and he felt shame for having recanted of his beliefs. He thought, well, both kings will reject me now. I've disappointed both of them. Cramner believed the only way forward would require more than confessing sins to a priest. He needed to make a public statement about what he really believed. So before his execution, Cramner appeared at the University Church in Oxford, which was filled with people. And it was Cramner's turn to, turn to speak. Now, they all expected him to get up and say, what a bad mistake he had made, ever holding to Protestant beliefs. I'm a Roman Catholic. That's what they expected. And as he began, the crowd would listen very attentively. He began asking the crowd to forgive him of his sins. Cranmer exhorted the rich to avoid covetousness, and his eyes filled with tears as he talked about the poor who were starving amid rising food prices. Cranmer has stated early on in his prepared message that one thing, one thing grieved his conscience more than anything else. Later in his speech, he returned to that topic. Cranmer recanted of his recantation. He went back and said, no, I'm really, I'm really Protestant. So he recanted of his recantation. You with me? He's recanted of, of being um, Roman Catholic. He recanted of signing the recent bills and papers of recanting his Protestant beliefs. The Roman Catholic doctrine was contrary to the truth that was in his heart. Cranmer's statements were met 
some people had joy. Other people had rage in the crowd. He continued speaking through the commotion and said, And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. Well, that just set people off. They were enraged. They pulled him down from the stage, and he was escorted out to be burned at the stake, same place where Latimer and Ridley had been burned about six months earlier. But before he left the stage, he said, For as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first, shall first be punished, therefore. So the hand that wrote the recantation would be the first to burn. Once the fire was lit, Cramer stretched out his hand into the heart of the fire for all to see. He repeated as long as he could, his unworthy right hand, unworthy right hand, this hand hath offended. He also repeated the words of the first martyr, Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He died rather quickly. It was said that in the ashes of the fire, his heart remained unburned. Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley became known as the Oxford Martyrs. If you visit Oxford today and you go to the intersection of St. Giles, Modlin Street, and Beaumont Street, you'll find a memorial called the Martyrs Memorial. It's dedicated to these three men that we just talked about who died only a short distance away. This is what it says on the Martyrs Memorial. To the glory of God and in grateful commemoration of his servants, Thomas Cramner, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, prelates of the Church of England, who near this spot yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths, which they had affirmed and maintained against the errors of the Church of Rome, and rejoicing that to them it was given not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And while you're there in Oxford, if you turn onto Broad Street and begin walking, before long you'll notice in the middle of a paved road, there's a cross surrounded by bricks. That's the exact spot where these three men were burned for holding Protestant doctrines that you and I hold so dear. Many people pass up and down that street and probably have no idea what that little spot is for. But it's there. It's in the middle of Broad Street. And that area is blocked off. You can't drive in that area. And you just, but it's a pretty wide street. And in, in Cramner and Ridley's day, that was right outside of the, outside of the uh, college proper, and it was a creek. But now it's a, it's a paved area. But there's just a little square, and there's some bricks, and there's a cross. And that's where these three men were burned. Let me give you just a couple, three application points. Encourage others who are preparing for ministry to pursue education with excellence. Encourage others who are preparing for ministry to pursue education with excellence. Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, Tyndall, Erasmus, they all had a major impact on their English Reformation. They were all very well-educated men. Now, certainly you don't have to be educated for God to use you. you. All you need is be saved and to be filled with the Spirit. But I think there is a standard of excellence we should encourage people to pursue. And so, I mean, would you want to go to a medical doctor? He said, man, I felt called to medicine. You go, where did you go to school? Oh, I didn't go to medical school. God called me. Or would you go to an attorney that said, I never went to law school. You know, I, I just felt called. No, you, you would want them to be trained, wouldn't you? And so I, I, you could name people, and I could too, people that have not been trained. God has used mightily. But I believe God is, is, gonna, is, is and is going to call people up out of this church 
to go into ministry. And I think we should, let's encourage them to pursue it with excellence. Go for it. Train the best you can. Do, do the best you can. Get out there and, and, and get with it and just trust that God's going to equip you to do what he's called you to do. Next, the gospel is worth enduring persecution. The gospel is worth enduring persecution. I was in our life group this past Sunday, and uh, Kevin and Charity were in there. And Kevin was saying, you know, I wouldn't move my family to this area of the world just for a job. But for the gospel, it's worth it. For the gospel, it's worth it. You know, they understand that there's some risk involved, but for the gospel, it's worth it. So you and I don't have to fear persecution. We just pray, God, would you give me boldness? Because the gospel is worth it. And then finally, intimacy with Christ can occur again, even if you have blown it. Intimacy with Christ can occur again, even if you have blown it. In a moment of weakness, Thomas Cramner recanted his Protestant beliefs. In a moment of weakness, Peter denied Jesus. But both men finished well, and you can too. There may be some moment in your life you think, boy, I wish I could have that back. I, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that, whatever it was. But intimacy with Christ can be restored because we serve a merciful, merciful God.